Sinia. And I'm Maya. And we've been friends for a long time. But our friendship was brought even closer since both of us experienced unimaginable tragedies with the loss of our babies. Maya, whose son Leo died at just 10 days old, and my daughter Isabel, who was still born at 33 weeks. Since then, our lives have taken us on very different and unexpected paths, not only having to navigate grief, but also some of the more unconventional ways of having a baby. This is Making It to Motherhood, a podcast where we talk about grief, life after loss, journeys to motherhood, and all the ups and downs along the way. So this week, we'll be talking about baby loss and what happened when Maya's son Leo died at 10 days old. Welcome, everybody, to Making It to Motherhood. Well, this is all rather exciting, isn't it, Maya? It really is. I never thought I'd be putting podcaster on my CV, and now here we are. So before we kick off, let's give some background on us. We've known each other for coming up to 15 years, back in the day when we were footloose and fancy free and living in London. And I know all of this because I trawled through Facebook last night where it mainly came to light that we spent most of our 20s inebriated and in fancy dress, (laughs) which I'm sure doesn't surprise you to hear that. Good times. But since then, you've moved to the glorious Cayman Islands for a Caribbean lifestyle. And I'm embarking on a move all the way to Bristol. (laughs) Not quite the same. Sort of coastal? (laughs) Sure, we'll go with that. We both live on islands. There's still similarities, I'm sure. But times have changed rather. But really, let's talk about what got us to recording this podcast. Our lives took a pretty shocking turn when we both lost our babies And then we went on some fairly unusual, unconventional journeys um, to having our next babies. So here we are. We promise it's not going to be all depressing and tears. There might be some, but we'll also have some laughs and make some new discoveries along the way. So to kick us off, Maya is going to tell her story about how she became a mum and then tragically lost her son Leo when he was just 10 days old. So Maya, let's start with pregnancy and labour. How was it for you? Honestly, pretty easy breezy. Uncomplicated pregnancy. Felt good, felt fit and healthy, moving a lot, walking the dog every day. Just cruised through, to be honest. Didn't have any nausea or, I mean, really don't hate me, but like I really, really was having a pretty good time fit. When you say don't hate you, I sort of am hating you a little bit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I feel for people who, you know, feel sick for months on end. And, you know, I had the the normal kind of tiredness, but honestly, it was all fine. And had no kind of warning signs on anything, really. Kind of flying through all my appointments. And baby was looking well. He, we knew it was a boy. He was kicking all over the show. So, yeah, we were just kind of happily awaiting the arrival of the little man. And then labor was pretty uncomplicated and straightforward too. My blood pressure had gone up a little bit, but nothing crazy and started getting contractions at home. They kind of started getting spicier as as normal. And then off we went to the hospital. Here is a little bit of a funny story because I ended up laboring pretty much without my husband with 
a nurse friend by my side because the doctors at the hospital, even though, and the midwives, even though I had high blood pressure and I'd been given an induction gel at that point to kind of speed up the process that was happening naturally, they didn't want me to labor for too, too long with high blood pressure. Everyone was wholly unconcerned about kind of anything really. And so Rich was sent home. They were told that my labor might take kind of another 24 hours. He was sent home and I was told to get some rest. And to cut a long story short, that didn't happen. Labor came on really quickly and I progressed really quickly. Luckily, a friend of mine is a nurse. She's a pediatric nurse. She was working a night shift. So I messaged her being like, any chance you're around? Happened to be in labor. And she popped down on one of her breaks and was basically my birthing partner for all the hours that I was progressing and dilating really quickly. Just when I'd got to the point where I'd convinced everyone that I really, really needed an epidural and things were getting really kind of serious, she called Rich and that was, I think, 2am and 45 minutes later, Leo was born. Oh, wow. That was pretty quick. <laughs> and I love the fact that Rich is just, you know, at home, none the wiser for most of your labor. N- none the wiser. And you know what? Actually, not a bad thing having a nurse as your birthing partner. She, she was your labor partner. She was fantastic. So thanks to Janelle. But yeah, labor went pretty well. Dad had arrived in time for the kind of finale, if you will. Cut the cord. Leo was born and he was checked over in the normal way, handed to me straight away for some skin to skin, all just, you know, the happiest day of your life, really. Rich, you know, kind of lent over to me saying how proud he was of me and our perfect little little guy was here. And that was it, really. Pregnancy and labor, tick. And I mean, I saw pictures of Leo and he was just the most gorgeous looking boy, wasn't he? Oh, so beautiful. So what happened next? Again, we kind of, things continued pretty normally. We were taken back to our room and Rich went home. It was still kind of the middle of the night. So he went home for a couple of hours. We were also told to get some rest. My friend Janelle, still being on her night shift, actually sat with Leo in his little cot or bassinet whilst I got a couple of hours shut eye. And then she woke me up when she thought he needed to feed kind of early hours of the morning. And the, you know, shift change at the hospital morning had kind of come round and Rich was on his way back in to see us. And we just had a really lovely day. We had lots of visitors. Pediatrician came to check on him again. We phoned family, you know, like all the things that you do when you've just had a baby. So that first day was, was just wonderful. And we were just getting to know him really and, you know, changing your first nappy and trying to feed and just kind of trying to get to grips with it all. And we were on top of the world. Rich bought um, Prosecco and pizza in that night. And then off he went to his head wetting and I stayed with Leo. And here you get a couple of days in hospital. So he went off to the head wetting, came back in a little bit groggy in the morning. He'd celebrated well. And that morning, day three, the paediatrician that came to check on him said that he was looking a bit weak and that she thought that there might be kind of something up with maybe his tongue or his jaw and that she also wanted to check something on his spine. And that was a bit of a surprise because the day, the previous day had just been, you know, mm-hmm. completely normal and, and celebratory. 
And so we were a little bit confused and in all honesty now in hindsight as well, in complete denial. I was like, no, there's nothing wrong with his mouth. He's not weak. Look at me, you know, he was kicking around like mad yesterday. But as the day went on, those kind of quibbles in her mind started to be confirmed by other people as well. Not that anyone was in any way, you know, really concerned, but questions were starting to be asked. And at the end of that day, the head midwife on shift, who we who we know and, and love, lovely, lovely, lovely lady, came in and said, you know, I really don't think he's eaten much. And I hadn't really, I, I can't say that I'd struggled with breastfeeding in that I, I wasn't in a fluster about it, but I couldn't tell you that he'd had a, you know, great latch and eaten loads, but I was a new first time mum. So I had no idea what to expect or what I should have been feeling or what he should have been doing. I was just kind of trying to do it <laughs> you know, kind of. And they'd mentioned, the midwives had mentioned that they might top him up with some formula from a cup. And I'd heard of that happening. So that didn't surprise me. I wasn't concerned about that. I was like, if that's what he needs whilst we figure out this breastfeeding thing, then fine, you know, whatever, whatever he needs. But she came in and said, "He, re- I really don't think he's eaten anything at all. I'm going to take him in to the nursery for a tube feed. And that floored me. I was not expecting it. I mean, Rich, the same. And he was then taken into NICU pretty quickly. Like she, we broke down. I told her how upset I was. And she just said, you know, I know you're upset, but we need to get some food into him. I don't know why he's not feeding. And it was around the time of the shift change. It was just before seven. So she was going home and, you know, we were heading into the night and, and he, off he was taken into NICU. Goodness. So what was it like being separated from, from him at that point? Horrendous, absolutely horrendous. I was still in hospital at that point, I hadn't been discharged. So there was that, I guess I was kind of only across the hall from him. But like I said, it was the shift change. So, and I, and I always say this when I'm telling this story, you, you know, you have to like wheel your baby around hospitals. You're not allowed to carry them. You have to wheel them around in the bassinet. Oh, okay. I don't think I realized that. Yeah. I think that's kind of the world over, but for some reason they, you know, maybe because you've just given birth and I don't know, you may not be able to kind of walk properly still or whatever. I think hospitals are terrified that you're going to drop your baby. I mean, of all the things that you're going to do in that situation, you want to cling on to them with all that you have. But no, you're not allowed to carry them, even though I'd been carrying him around our room and, you know, cradling him all day, basically. No, you have to put him back in the bassinet and wheel him. So we wheeled him across the hall and then wheeled him into NICU. So, you know, shift change is happening, new nurse on shift in NICU, new new midwives on shift in the labor ward. And we're given very thin info. It was kind of like, you know, you can come and go, come in, you know, as often as you like. You're um, still on the ward, Maya, so you don't have to wear a gown or anything. You can literally come in, you know, 24-hour access. Dad as well, but dad will have to wear a gown because he's not a patient of the hospital. And come and go as you please. But that was kind of it. We weren't told whether we can hold him. We weren't told, oh, and, you know, put your belongings in a plastic bag. So put your phone in a plastic bag to make sure there's no um, cross-contamination of anything in NICU. But that was it. We weren't told that we could still have skin to skin. We weren't told any of that. So we kind of just left him. And 
literally gave him a stroke. Um, he was given the feeding tube. I think we watched him maybe having some milk and I was pumping at this point to give him milk. And then I padded back to my room. I think Rich was with me at that point, but soon after he went home and it that night was just horrific being separated from Rich. He went home and he said that he got home and just burst into tears. He was just, you know, kind of crying with the dog on the floor and I was just in my maternity ward room bawling. None of us, well, neither of us knew what the hell was going on. We had so many unanswered questions at this point. We were trying to piece together information that we just didn't have from snippets that we'd kind of had from from doctors of, oh, you know, what about the tongue? What about the spine? What, you know, but you have zero information. So obviously then you shouldn't go on Google, but you do. You're not sleeping. I was still pumping. It was just, it was honestly the loneliest night of our lives. It was, it was awful. It was absolutely awful. I mean, and anyone I think that has, has been, has had a kid in NICU will tell you that, you know, it is, it is just a terrifying hit. You know, you have to learn so many things so quickly, but, you know, going into it at night is just, it's just terrific. So then, the next day rolls around and we had lots of tests, but he was still just on the feeding tube and we had had some cuddles then, kind of taking him out of the bassinet to try and feed him. But we weren't getting loads of contact. And I think that's the kind of heartbreaking thing at this point that we we didn't know that we could still, I could have sat with him all night in in the rocking chair in NICU if, I, if, if I'd known, instead of in my room crying my eyes out, you know. But, you know, the next day, hospitals alive with people and we had tests done and all of which actually looked pretty positive we still didn't have any answers but we weren't we were just sort of trying to figure out why he wasn't feeding it wasn't it wasn't kind of terrifying from you know his point of view at that point and um that night I was discharged so I went home with Rich and I was given the option to the hospital's credit to stay in had I wanted to be close to Leo but at that point it mattered more to me to be with Rich because being apart was breaking us kind of mentally. And I just needed to be kind of with him and figure out kind of what was going on next to him rather than over text messages at 2am. And we, we knew that Leo was safe and we knew that Leo was kind of in the best place for him and that we had 24 hour access to him anyway. So I made the decision to go home. You know, get some clean clothes and have a proper shower and a couple of hours in my own bed. But honestly, by the time we got home, I was broken. I was shaking. You know, just when your body, like I hadn't slept, I really hadn't slept since he'd been taken into, into NICU. My body was just starting to shut down really. And I did have a couple of hours sleep and got up to pump. And I think when I got up to pump, I just said to Rich, I've got to go back. I can't, I can't be here. I need to be back in the hospital. So I went back and I had a little cuddle um, with Leo and we tried to feed him again. And in the morning of that day, so I think this is day five now, the Wednesday in the morning, we'd agreed that two pediatricians would come to assess him. So we had now our pediatrician who had been seeing him over the last few days and her. we asked if she wouldn't mind if we got a second opinion. And she was like, no, like I would actually really welcome another opinion here because we don't really, you know, I can't really figure it out 
on my own. I've got some ideas, but second opinion would be really welcome. And I think this is actually a tip for for anyone in this situation is not to be afraid to ask for a second opinion. Because if you think about it in any industry and particularly in medicine, you know, when you're met with an unusual case, and there's a, there's a huge amount of pressure on the doctor at that point to have the answers. You know, parents are literally staring at them being like, tell me what's wrong. And if they can't come up with them or if it's a complicated case and they, they sort of want to be sure of what they're telling you, actually having a peer and a colleague that, you know, can kind of go through the motions with them and say, yeah, you know, I'm thinking the same thing or no, how about we consider X, Y, and Z is is actually it's not offensive or it shouldn't be you know to our doctor the the idea that we would ask someone else wasn't offensive to her at all she was like no I would actually love someone I'm really glad you asked for that because I would love you know someone else to be looking at this with me so she called on and another incredible neonatal pediatrician so lucky to have them both here on a small island they came in and they started assessing him in the morning Richard come in as well as they're going through their kind of regular assessments the nurse in the NICU said is anyone watching this baby's oxygen I think we need to look at the oxygen so they took a blood gas they take a pinprick from the heel the first now of many (laughs) that Leo would have and sure enough his his oxygen levels were low so they popped on the little CPAP mask to help him out carried on with his checks and we're kind of at this point, the doctors are starting to say, you know, we're not, we're, we're not really that that happy with with him now. He he is looking like there could be um, quite a severe disability going on, and and things are pointing to some, you know, kind of not that great scenarios. And you you might need to sort of think about what you want to do in terms of next steps um, to investigate this more. We might recommend that you remember that we're in the Cayman Islands. So you, we might recommend that you go for some further tests in Miami. And we're kind of communicating this back with friends and family of, oh, it looks like, you know, Leo's struggling a little bit. Probably another hour goes past and this same nurse says, oxygen. And again, now the pediatricians are kind of alive to it and they're saying, yeah, 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 check, check, check. Janelle, my friend who I'd mentioned had been with me through labor, had turned up, which was a godsend because she was able to kind of translate some of the NICU and medical terms that were being thrown around. So she was helping explain what was happening with the little oxygen mask and and the help that he was been given. But long story short, his oxygen was dropping even further and he needed to be intubated. They intubate him. We were taken from the room. Janelle kind of talked us through all of that. You know, we wouldn't want to watch that. And we were told that at this point we would need to go to Miami. It wasn't a talk through your options, like you're going and he might not make it. Oh my goodness. That's that's a very big thing to be told, isn't it? That your baby might not make it. And and also, I think I've sort of kind of forgotten that you've just given birth as well in <laughs> a few days ago. So you are not in your sort of like, you know, best state either, I guess, physically. And then on top of that, you've got, all of this and you've just been told that your baby might not make it. I mean, I can't, I just can't even imagine what you're going through. It's funny that you, well, not funny, huh? You know, it it is interesting that you mentioned, you know, I'd just given birth because actually I wasn't thinking about it. And, And a couple of friends were messaging me saying, you know, 
on top of all of this, how are you dealing with the baby blues? Because this is kind of day three, four, the classic time when those baby blues would set in, you know, those that overwhelm of hormones as your milk comes in and stuff. And honestly, it was so far from my mind. But I'm sure that those things were happening. It, it was just, you know, my body... I guess had put those emotions to the bottom of the priority list and was just focusing on Leo. I mean, I imagine that sort of adrenaline was pretty high for you as well. Again, just sort of going through your body. Yeah, we just solely focused on Leo and trying to make sense of all this information that we were given, give, being given about what was happening with him. So, you know, we're told that we've off, we've got to go to Miami. And I remember actually speaking sitting in a chair staring at walls for quite a long time my my husband sprung into action trying to organize paperwork he needed a passport to fly he needed a police clearance certificate to make sure that he hadn't I don't know committed any crimes in three days in Niki I mean the stuff that you need to collect to get a passport and then clearance to fly to America I can't even imagine what it's like now with COVID. But yeah, we kind of hit, everyone sprung into action around us as well. Friends kind of turned up to help and it, and actually just sit with me staring at a wall, <laughs> you know, amazing support. And we got ourselves organized and it was only actually when I was sitting in this room, maybe I was pumping or I was just kind of on the phone to someone else. And I overheard our pediatrician say on the phone to the hospital in Miami, that she needed a room for a little baby who was on life support. And honestly, it hadn't actually sunk in and I hadn't made the connection between him being intubated and that being life support. I mean, duh, it's obvious. To putting it into kind of like everyday terms that people like you and I understand, life support means one thing. Intubated, I'm not even sure quite what that is. (laughs) Life support to me, it's just fucking bad, isn't it? Like it's life support. And that was, that was, I think a turning point in my mind of, oh shit, my baby is in serious, serious trouble here. And I think everything had happened so quickly. And, you know, he'd gone from being a completely normal baby at birth to on life support three days later. And, you know, having to make phone calls to family to say, Oh, you know, he might, he's having some difficulties. He's in the nursery. Oh, you know, he's really having difficulties. He's having help breathing, might be disabled. He's on life support, you know, within the space of 12 hours. So it's a lot to process. And I guess I, I sort of needed to hear it in black and white of life support to actually get it through my brain with, you know, all those emotions swirling. And I guess so that's the other thing you're saying that you're speaking to your friends and family. I mean, your family presumably is back in the UK. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we'd made, and you know, these are the things that you do when you're kind of expecting a normal bring your baby home situation. We had spoken about to family about coming out for the birth. And I'd actually said to my parents, you know, just give us a week or two to get settled and then come out. And I don't think that's uncommon for people who have children kind of away from their parents or all the grandparents where they give themselves some space and then family come out. And that was done, I guess, rather selfishly from Rich and mine's point of view in terms of we wanted this space. We wanted this family time to ourselves and keeping grandparents at an arm's length for a week or two because you know they would have been here in a heartbeat my mum would have been here you know for the whole thing if she could have done but you know we we 
agreed that that was what we would do. Now I'm like, I shouldn't be precious about having people in my house at around the time for child's birth. Just bring it on. Everyone come. (gasps) Yeah, they were back in the UK and we were headed to Miami. Quite an incredible experience getting to Miami with a five-day-old baby. I mean, it's like something, it's like scenes out of The Incredibles and Top Gun combined, honestly. I think we had four ambulances taking us to the airport and three nurses. I mean, the equipment that a baby on life support is, is, is put in. And, and through all of this, I'd say, you know, in, in the whole tragedy of losing Leo, and I've said this every time I've told his story and I've said kind of when I talk about elements of it, and this is one of them, the people that you meet along the way and the things that you kind of your eyes are opened to are really quite humbling and incredible. You know, this life flight crew that come in to basically save babies all over the all over the world and, and all over the US are just just, you know, some of the best people I've ever met. You know, what they do on in their day-to-day job, flying around and and taking you know, babies on life support to to where they need help in in a facility like the one we went to in Miami. And they were just, they were amazing. They really kind of run a a pretty slick operation and got us there, you know, reassuring us along the way. We knew that we were in safe hands. Watching them at work was just, it was, it was just amazing. It was, it was a really kind of cool part of it, even though obviously it was a nightmare happening in front of our eyes. And it really felt like I remember walking through the hospital following this huge incubator on gas tanks, you know, with with Leo inside, you know, being on life support with all the tubes attached to him and all of that, the buzzers and beepers and everything going on, watching that being wheeled through with these nurses in their you know like full-on top gun onesies and their life flight caps and carrying all manner of nurse bags and equipment in each hand and I remember watching it thinking almost as though I was watching my own life in a movie it was kind of like I was watching it from outside I just couldn't believe that it was me that it was happening to as we arrive in Miami in the I think late hours of the evening, maybe early hours of the morning and get taken to Nicholas Children's Hospital, which was just like arriving on the Starship Enterprise, just incredible. Taken to our our room and then that kind of kicked off the next phase of, of this incredible journey, really. So day six of Leo's life, you are... In Miami, you and Rich and half the cast of Top Gun, by the sounds of it, have travelled to travelled to Miami, and you are in this incredible facility. And I guess are you starting to? Well, what are you feeling? Um, if I put words into your mouth, <laughs> we're feeling grateful that we're there, and actually um, grateful that we're finally all in one room as a family. We could stay with Leo in the room. We had a little sofa bed. I mean, I'm making it sound nicer than it was. The sofa bed was horrific, but it was it was a bed in a room with Leo. So we were a family. That was really incredible to all be together after, you know, nights of turmoil of being apart and just being able to kind of not leave his side in NICU was, was just a gift really. So grateful to be in this amazing facility if you've got to go through this you want to go through it somewhere like that not taking anything away from from the fact that we have an EQ here in Cayman and it's great so we're a family 
And and actually, when we got there, we collapsed onto the sofa bed and I didn't sleep. I was kind of watching the nurses go about their business, but Rich fell asleep and he started snoring so loudly. I I was mortified. I was like, the nurses are going to, I mean, you're going to distract them from their work at one point, you know. Give the guy a break. He's not slept in days. Come on. (laughs) I know. I know. But I was, uh, anyway, it, it was hilarious. It was just one of those moments where, you know, you're in this kind of parallel universe you've got baby on life support, husband snoring the other side. And I was just there in between. But, you know, we then had a full day of tests. And I think we were starting to get to the point of it's really not looking good. With every test that you try and eliminate something that could, you know, a a shot in the dark of, you know, doctors were coming in and saying, we're going to try this, you know, maybe it's this and maybe this steroid will work and we'll crack it and he'll sort of come back to life as it were. Because he was, you know, he was on life support. He wasn't feeding. I mean, he was effectively in a coma, I guess. Um, and he was having seizures. It it wasn't fun for, for Leo at that point. And we were just trying to get to the bottom of what it was. So, you know, great. If this steroid works and and that's the answer and, you know, he's just got an intolerance to whatever it is that you think you might have an intolerance to, then awesome. But as soon as he'd been given that steroid and that steroid hadn't worked, you're kind of edging ever closer to it potentially being really shit. We were very quickly getting into this mind frame of either figure it out or this needs to end for Leo because he's not having a great time, but also for us. This term non-catotic hypoglycemia had been thrown around since before we'd left Cayman. One of the pediatricians had mentioned it. Sorry, can you can you say that again? <laughs> non-catotic hypoglycemia. I mean, we processed it with about as much, you know, kind of attention to it as you just did then. It was it was thrown out by a pediatrician. It could be something like non-catotic hypoglycemia, NKH. I hope it's not but it might be, I think it might be. And so once we'd arrived in Miami and certain tests had been done and we'd met uh, geneticists and kind of a bunch of other doctors, they started talking about non-catotic hyperglycinemia again. And so once we'd heard it a few times, we were kind of like, oh, it really sounds like that's kind of where this is going, thanks to Google. Um, But also, you know, they were telling us a little bit about it at that point. We knew that NKH was really bad and terminal and not an easy outcome for us. So then we go into day seven and the next day, Friday. So we've kind of gone through all of the potential good news scenarios and now we're down to, okay, if it is NKH, we need a diagnosis of that. And diagnosis is through genetic testing, which can take weeks or in kind of classic and severe cases, they can diagnose it through an MRI. So we were waiting for an MRI on the Friday and we had that MRI and Rich and I had discussed what we kind of wanted should the MRI come back conclusive and diagnose NKH. And the MRI did do exactly that. So the two-hour MRI, after just an hour, we were called back by the doctors and 
they did have a conclusive diagnosis from that MRI. They'd seen everything they need to see to diagnose a classic and severe case of NKH. At that point, we'd actually asked family to fly out from the UK to be with us and to meet Leo. Friends were on their way to join us from Cayman as well. We'd kind of People had rallied and decided to come and support us, you know, in any way they could. We made the decision to remove life support that evening. So we had to call family and friends to tell them, you know, still get on the plane, but we're removing life support. You you won't meet him. God, what a massive decision you had to make and just how how tragic for you guys what you're going through at the time. You know, I'm I'm kind of talking about it quite matter-of-factly. It wasn't obviously an easy decision at all. Easy in that we had a conclusive diagnosis and the support of every doctor and nurse, you know, that we'd spoken to that this was the right thing to do for Leo. But it does not feel like you're being a good parent when you sign paperwork to say remove life support. And, you know, we didn't want him to be in pain. We didn't want him to have, you know, zero quality of life. And, you know, it is it is a brave decision to make, but it's a hard decision to make. And it feels pretty shitty, I can tell you. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say I can imagine. I can't imagine. But yeah, the pressure that you put on yourselves to have to make that decision. But, mm-hmm. you know, you, would, you and Rich are just being the best parents that, you know how to be and that's that's all you're doing right you're making decisions based on that yeah so there's a lot of you know kind of paperwork that you have to sign at this point and things you have to go through so on friday night you know we've had this diagnosis we've made the, this decision and one of the doctors came in and said you know we'll get all of this paperwork processed you know you guys take some time to come to terms with everything and we'll come back on monday and I, at this point, crumbled to the floor. We'd obviously been crying and trying to kind of grieve and process everything that was going on. But that was, I, I just couldn't handle it anymore at that point. I just fell down onto my hands and knees. And I remember Rich just kind of looking at me and pointing at me and saying to this doctor, you cannot keep us here until Monday in this situation. And once you've made the decision to remove life support, you don't wait three days. <laughs> like you just right. Okay, so yeah, I was going to ask. So does that mean that because you know it's a Friday, he was going to clock off and then come back? You know, you guys have a lovely weekend. I'll be back on Monday to turn off the life support. Basically, basically, and and I think I'd been and I you know I obviously wasn't being dramatic, but I think the show that I'd put on by by my kind of mental capacity, kind of overflowing at that point and falling to the floor. I mean, I just, I I was hyperventilating. I was just like, this cannot be, he cannot be serious. And I think that was enough for him to reconsider and and say, okay, fine, you know, I'll go get the people that we need to get. And we'll, because there's a lot, you know, that they have to make sure that you're of sound mind and arguably, you know, at this point. (laughs) But, you know, that, you know, they have to make sure that, you know, all of these these decisions have been considered and that, you know, T's have been crossed and I's have been dotted. But we got there. One of our friends had managed to get there to to be with us, bless him. Then the moment's upon us. 
you know, we kind of turned to each other. Are you ready? Yeah, we're ready. We were holding him. We were cuddling him at this point. All the tubes are taken taken off him, just left with the stats monitor to monitor his pulse and oxygen. And And you think, this is it? And we were told it can take kind of minutes or it can take days. And I remember thinking days, like there's like what? Like once you've removed life support, like he's on life support, he can't live without life support. This is, this is going to be over. But they, they did say it can take days and he took days. He crashed straight off the, the life support, but then those stats came soaring right back up. And we, I mean, we had legit made plans for what we were going to do when we left the hospital because we were in Miami. We couldn't go home. So we kind of looked at where we were going to stay that night and kind of started booking accommodation because, you know, we we had to plan. We couldn't stay. Once, once Leo had died, we couldn't stay in the hospital. So we'd kind of started making, putting these practical plans in place for, or I say we, you know, Matt that had come to stay with us was doing that for us. In no way did I think we're spending, you know, another couple of nights here with him, but we did. And it was, it was magical. You know, he, he held on for long enough for our families to, to make it out. Friends made it out from, from Cayman to kind of just sit with us. And we just, we just sat with him in those kind of final days of his life. And he was, he was starting to leave us, but we, we had time for cuddles to, to sleep next to him to, you know, he was out of the bassinet at this point. Cause obviously he wasn't connected to, to anything other than, other than the stats monitor. And anyone that's been through a NICU stint will tell you that you live and breathe by the stats monitor. But we sang songs, we told him stories. We actually had, I mean, we pulled all nighters with our friends, sort of taking it in turns to, to catch, you know, 20 minutes sleep here and there, because we wanted to make the most of every minute that we had with Leo before he went. But yeah, it was, it was a heartbreaking and tragic, but really magical time. And then we finally said goodbye to him on, on the Monday when he was 10 days old. I mean, it's so difficult to find the right words to say to you, Maya, but it's, utterly heartbreaking but so inspiring to hear your story as well and how amazingly you've managed to to tell it as well despite how difficult it all you know it is and it must be to recount it oh well thanks for letting me tell it and you know I'm sure Leo is having a great time up there (laughs) looking down on you all and smiling away and very thankful that you are still sort of obviously remembering him and his story oh for sure so each episode we're going to have a little mother's moan where essentially it's a chance to have a little rant about something that's getting our goat so Maya why don't you kick us off so I'm actually going to have a little rant about the term angel baby and come kind of working both ways you hear a lot of parents call their kids angels and it really grinds me because I consider Leo to be an angel but he's an actual angel because he passed away and then he flew up to the stars and now he's our little angel and it really triggers me when parents say and and they say about Freddie our, our second oh he's such a little angel and and then I think it kind of our, our kids will all be playing together and someone will say, oh, they're little angel babies. And it just, it, it, it doesn't make me 
angry, but it just, it throws up so many feelings. And so I guess I'm moaning about people flippantly using the word angel. I mean, there's so many words like that, aren't there, that can probably trigger different people for different reasons. But angel for me is the one. It's ridiculous as well, because my friends do it and I've never pulled them up on it. Why don't I tell them that it triggers me? I mean, (laughs) I'm recording a podcast about it. They're going to know now. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say that. Now they do. But I mean, I was actually very close to describing Leo as in the pictures as looking angelic when he's born. You know, like it's just such a commonly used kind of turn of phrase, isn't it? Like angels, angelic, all that. And it's really interesting that um, to hear that it triggers you because I personally, I don't feel that at all. I'd never really thought about that. It might now, now that you've put it in my head. <laughs> But, oh, well, you know, I think it's I think it's actually really good to get it out there so that people know and can be mindful of how you feel about it. Yeah, well, there we go. I've said it now. <laughs> well, you can counteract my moan. Let's go on to something a little more cheery. We're also going to do a big up every week. Big up for something or someone um, that's made you smile. So this week, I am going to big up subscription flowers. So as I'm sure you and many others have experienced, when Isabel died, we had a lot of friends and families send us flowers, which is absolutely lovely. And I really do mean that. So please don't stop sending people flowers. But when you have had your 20th bunch of flowers being delivered at the door, you start to run out of vessels to house them. And there were a few comedy moments of Braden and I searching the house for spare jugs and jars and saucepans. And I think we even used a spare kettle at one point. I'm sorry, you have spare kettles? (laughs) The benefits of being a hoarder, Maya. Anyway, so big up to my friend Beth and her idea to send us a monthly flower subscription from a company called Bloom and Wild. And because what that meant was that after the initial few weeks after Isabel died and when your family and friends returned to normal, but you are very much still in that kind of depth of grief and despair, you receive a lovely bunch of flowers out the blue. And it's just a reminder that you're not alone and people are still thinking of you and still checking in. That's really lovely. Yeah, yeah, it's a nice idea. Well, thanks again for listening. Next week, Zinnia is going to tell her story about when her darling little Isabel was stillborn at 33 weeks. So make sure you tune in next Wednesday for another episode of Making It to Motherhood. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast as well as follow us on Instagram at Making It to Motherhood. And please spread the word and share our podcast with friends and family. And we hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening. Bye.